Listening to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be reading from my semi autobiographical novel, I'm Just Making It Up As I Go Along, and Things Have Not Been Working Out As Well As I Intended. Chapter 9583. Temporary Friends, Part 5, Living Death. At this point, I have to recall a number of minor events which add up to a greater picture of what day-to-day life was like when living among and being one of the heavy drug users. What happens when the high is gone? You have to face the music, and although you may be a bit grizzled, experienced in these matters and somewhat nonchalant about experiences that would drive others to a state of frenzy. You not only know how and what goes into the sausages, but you are actually making them. We were living in a world of delirium, even when not euphorically high, but still under the influence. The morning or afternoon after, as it was, while we attempted to approximate real-world routine tasks and chores, which would ordinarily be successfully accomplished by functional members of society without incident. Instead, we would engage in spirited, animated conversations about such vital topics as crafting our own obscene lyrics to the theme songs of classic television programs and pondering whether or not Anson Williams, as Patsy Weber, was actually singing the theme to Happy Days as portrayed during the opening credits or not. This was all in the mid-80s, so access to definitive information on Purell subjects such as these remained speculative for the time being because we were lazing about on the living room floor of the place we were being squalid in due to our monstrous drug consumption. We never actually saw ourselves, or more accurately, me, being a guilty bystander. They didn't, anyway, see themselves as behind-the-scenes kind of guys involved in nightlife. They definitely were astutely aware of the criminality, but did not connect casual users in any way to them. They didn't see that. They just built a mental wall up there and refused to acknowledge the possible harm they were causing to the health, wealth, safety, security, well-being, and futures of people who were basically decent people who wanted a kick on a weekend night or just wanted to party and play before the term was coined. And P&P is usually reserved for meth, which was taboo at our place. Nobody ever mentioned meth, except for maybe one or two derisive comments. We wasted our time getting high and failing in every other aspect of our lives. We neglected everything that was not an immediate need, and those were usually just for the sake of keeping the peace with people we regularly interacted with. We were derelict in our duties to ourselves and our peers, contemporaries, frenemies, colleagues, acquaintances. (sighs) The strung-out junkie crashing his car into the lantern on the brick base on the front lawn steps 
while wearing a leather jacket and shorts and uncontrollably shivering from withdrawal. This happened one summer afternoon. It was warm outside. We helped him in, and I parked the car. The lantern and the brick base were ruined. We had to explain that to the landlord. We had to pull the junkie, wearing a leather jacket and shorts on a very hot day, from the crashed car, drive the car off the lawn, and park it safely while the junkie was inside in the thralls of withdrawal. It reminded me of the ABC TV movie of the week starring David Carradine, maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring, or Ratso Rizzo and Midnight Cowboy. My friend knew how to take care of junkies going through withdrawal. Of course he did. He knew how to feed his friend's habit. I did not know he was in possession of smack. He was. The junkie's eyes rolled back in his head. Really, just like a movie. He was sweating profusely. He was as pale as a ghost. Giving this guy smack saved his life. How weird is that? Over a week ago, I got my third COVID booster and flu shot, and my right shoulder was stiff as a mackerel. I just cannot imagine injecting myself. I hated having blood drawn and injections and IVs all the time as a sick kid, so very many times, and my hands and forearm were always stiff and sore that I had a natural aversion to them, or rather enhanced my natural aversion to injection. It's funny to me how much less painful they are these days. When I was a kid, they hurt like hell. Even last week, one of my shots caused bleeding, but it hardly felt like an injection. The after effect of the injection site temporarily swelling and stiffening the soft tissue around it is the thing that causes discomfort. I used to wonder where junkies got their syringes and needles when it wasn't like you could just pick them up at a newsstand or a 7-Eleven. The people I knew who used heroin, did not look like caregivers. Most of them looked like people you kept your eyes on when they entered any place of business. The lower lids of their eyes were usually limbed, and they had a drop-jaw expression or spaced out or just sketchy look on their face. They also did not seem to pay much attention to social convention. Hell, I had long hair for a while there, and whenever I entered any respectable business, You could see the staff become anxious just because I had long hair. A white kid in his 20s. And I was dressed pretty good. But that somehow meant something for them to be on guard because I was probably up to no good. I was, at least, I think I was, up to good. I never robbed any shop or threatened anyone or shot up drugs. But long hair meant that you could not be taken for granted. It was like the stereotypical TV of the 60s and Dragnet. If you had long hair, you were a troublemaker. Even if you were a rocker, you were always under suspicion. To be a little more even-handed, the junkies usually disliked bright lights and the relative placidity of local pharmacies and flower shops, and they liked to be in places where they added to the atmosphere or could go unnoticed. For the most part, dark, 
dank, skanky joints were easier to be at your worst than at a mom and pop shop on the main street. Most ordinary, usual, conventional experiences were overwhelming epic sagas to them. Forget things like going to the post office or buying clothes. If it was sleazy and people did not go there to be recognized by respectable citizens, they were at home. Among themselves, they had a sense of normalcy, but it withered upon contact with normies, or as they said, the straights. And parents who pulled their kids in close as they went by were absolutely correct to do so. Many of them might have been harmless, but a few were loose cannons and could be suddenly roused to some sort of unstable state where they engaged in aggressive, hostile, or antic behavior that was completely inappropriate for younger, more innocent eyes to see. Just stay away from my kids, one might think they were saying to themselves. I think they really were. When you did come across these guys outside of their filthy, broken-down, unmaintained dumps, they had their priorities. They were completely unfocused as adults, but knew what they wanted and conflated indulging their desires with antisocial behavior. It was so strange. So they would suddenly become agitated out of any referential context and make a scene because they had no knowledge as to how to behave like a civilized human being. They would strut around places that were not accustomed to hosting junkies who were buying a few cases of beer to keep themselves saturated while getting high. Uh, they were the pests who caused scenes or made a nuisance out of themselves without any sense of awareness or self-awareness. They did stupid shit, or they did their best to avoid contact with people and keep their interactions at the lowest level they could and still get what they wanted, needed, and slip away under the radar. Remember those guys? They were usually the ones who were, as they say, carrying, and did not want to draw unsolicited attention to themselves and be stopped or detained or questioned by any authority figures. Be cool, man. We just kept on taking things in stride, too. All surreal, like a Kubrick or, like I previously said, a Friedkin movie on acid. Really, we did not dwell on things long enough to consider them or pontificate on the meaning or consequences. We were all just using a lot of very illegal, dangerous drugs. Drugs that change your personality. Drugs that keep you in a state of delusion. Drugs that keep you in denial. Drugs that make you desperate. Drugs that make you lie. Drugs that make you die. God. I hate cocaine. When you get lost in circular logic that is not grounded in reality, has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with you, not part of a vivid imagination, but a symptom of a diseased mind, you are lost. When we ran low on coke, the freebaser would drive over to a sketchy neighborhood and buy crack, which is Altogether garbage when compared to actual Coke. <laughs> I'm making this comparison. This is ridiculous. And a highly risky endeavor in the first place. And it smells far worse than freebase cocaine. You are not dealing with sound minds if they are selling crack on the street. At no point during my stay at the place was I ever aware of any heroin use. 
I thought he might have had a private stash of Dilaudid and mushrooms, which I may have had a few of mushrooms-wise, but no opioids. Weed and coke. I smugly laughed when I was first presented with the weed. My friend tried to roll into a joint because I had a reputation myself of being able to roll really good cigarettes, which burned evenly. My friend was clumsy, and I thought I would help his klutzy self out. I used two rolling papers, which I glued together by licking the glue on one and sticking it to the other to make a, a homemade easy wider of sorts. And then I got my hands on this sticky, resin-filled, intensely sticky, smelly, pungent, sticky, dank weed. I had great difficulty breaking it up and realized that my friend, who had been trying to cut it with a scissor, was correct because it was almost impossible to break up manually. This was uh, the 80s, Cheeching Chong time, maybe a little bit past that. Anyway, I finally did cut it up into pieces and rolled the joint, but the weed was so uncooperative that it was a clumpy mess. He let me have the first hit and I lit it. And I thought, this really sucks because it won't stay lit. It just keeps going out. When I try to burn it, it just won't stay lit. 45 minutes later, I came out of my weed-induced coma from the first attempted hit and realized how insanely powerful this weed was and got a very large laugh from my friend who was playing with me where we finally got a few hits on that joint over the course of several hours and still had at least half for the next day or so on top of the pound or so laying around the house. That was good weed. I don't want to, but at some point I will probably go into the strange sense of blowing your nose and seeing chunks of bloody roast beef fall out of your sinuses. I do recall quite a bit of denial over the possible implications of losing whatever tissue I did from the inside of my head because I used insanely large amounts of cocaine for free every day. At first, it was amusing, like winning a gross-out contest, except that you are the only contestant. So, the day of his death. My friend had passed away in the overnight from a heroin overdose. He was alone. It was not pretty. I had to go into his room and get his prayer shawl and a few other items uh, to give it to the undertaker and his family uh, in order to bury him according to religious authority. That was very strange. I felt like I was intruding on a dead friend to poke around and find the material things indicative of his spirituality that he kept very apart from his secular life. For some odd reason, he chose to hold on to a cover uh, one would adorn on the arm of a couch with a, like a brocade fringe on it or something like that. And um, I didn't know that it didn't need to be buried with him. So, uh, or, or if it was part of a ritual or anything like that. So I had to ask, sheepishly ask. And um, being a layman who grew up an Irish Catholic, I did not know if this was part of any religious material, like a shmata or something that needed to be buried with them at all, or if it was part of a ritual. <laughs> I asked several Jewish coworkers, and uh, they kindly informed me that it was just a couch arm cover, and I didn't have to be concerned. It was not an easy task to rummage through his stuff. 
I was the only one with the, uh, I guess, personal authority to actually, for lack of a better term, have free access to it. I never knew he actually had any of it while we were at the place we lived at before. This is before I left and before he left. No idea. There was an eerie, surreal addition to the house on that day of his death. His upstairs lessers, lessees themselves and co-workers, one of them anyway, uh, were subdued and almost tender, considering they were a little bit on the callous side. It was tragic, sad, and depressing at the same time. I don't remember how I got the call or how I got to the house, but I got there and it was still. Being in the room with the police as they informed his parents of his death over the telephone and hearing the plaintive wail and moan. He was just 26. I'm going to end it right here at this point. And I want to say thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. Thank you.